Welcome to the Renee Frazier Show, Why Women. We have certainly faced a lot of challenges this year in 2022. The way I look at the world is as a mother, an entrepreneur, and a woman. I am a social psychologist, president and CEO of Fraser Communication, the largest woman-led advertising firm here in Los Angeles. And we are dedicated to doing well by doing good, taking on mission-driven causes as we affect behavior change. But on the show, we talk with women leaders and men about the issues facing us in California and in the world. We're wrapping up the year with this show, talking about the challenges we faced in 2022 with an outlook for what can we do to make positive change happen in 2023. In this year, we have seen the ravages and challenges from global warming. We have seen a president of the United States, allegedly a former president, allegedly suggesting a coup of the government and now being prosecuted actively. We have also seen a number of mass shootings, almost the leading year for mass shootings, over 638 in the United States up until November. Sadly, we are seeing our children also facing anxiety and mental health issues as a result of the pandemic. This is a turbulent time, but we also have good things to look forward to. In Los Angeles, we now have a woman mayor, Karen Bass. And we have a board of supervisors that are all women. What I predict as a result of this is more compassion and more focus on good for humanity in Los Angeles. Let us hope and let us pray for that. Today, we're going to be talking about a very serious issue that occurred during this year, and that was the Dobbs decision. In um, many, many states, 26 states, it took away the right for women to choose what to do with their bodies and to choose if they want to have a child. And that is the right to an abortion, which had been instilled through Roe v. Wade. Today, we're going to bring to the show a wonderful person who has been working in this area for many years and most recently stepped into the role as president of Golden State Opportunity, a nonprofit organization focused on lifting people out of poverty throughout the state of California and even broadening that mission, which we'll hear about on the show. This woman is the CEO, as I said, president of GSO, Golden State Opportunity, and formerly vice president of NARAL, Pro-Choice America. It is Amy Everett, as I said, president of Golden State Opportunity. Welcome to the show, Amy. Thank you so much, Renee. Good to join you. Amy, I'm so glad you had the time to do this because I want people to gain a perspective on what the implications are behind the Dobbs decision. As I mentioned in the intro, this was a shock to many of us, even though it was a long time coming in terms of the work in front of the Supreme Court. But we know with the Dobbs decision, many states now have outlawed abortion. We've seen these states move quickly to do this, and we've also heard about trigger laws meaning that there may be more states. Can you tell us what that means and what the result will be of those trigger laws? Sure. I mean, first, let me start off by saying, you know, it's a complete travesty to live in a country that doesn't respect a woman's right to choose anymore. It's the first time a constitutional right has been reversed. And it means that the right to decide when to have children and if to have children is no longer a decision for a woman to make. So now I have like good news and bad news. 
The bad news is, as you point out, after the Dobbs decision, there were things called trigger laws. And within minutes, if not, or, or, or a couple of months, 26 states had outlawed abortion or so severely restricted it that it made it not actually an option or accessible. So now women in those states are having to make the heart-wrenching decisions about, you know, how do they access abortion care? What does it cost? How much time do they take off? How far do they have to travel or have a child they're not prepared to parent? Um, so that is the case in 26 states. The trigger laws were a situation where many states had these laws that said if Roe is ever overturned, we will immediately outlaw abortion. And many states did. So now here's the good news is that in the last election, abortion rights won. In conservative states like Kentucky, Kansas, and Montana, abortion rights were protected. In moderate states like Vermont and Michigan, abortion rights were protected. And here in California, we also enshrined abortion protection and birth control protection into our constitution. So I would say that the impact for women across this country has been terrible. The hope for the future, I think, is solid. Good to know. I think uh, that, as I talked about in my opening, we really are trying to focus on what's going to happen in the future and uh, uh, learn from the past, of course. But thank you for giving us kind of the, the lay of the land. Uh, I, I know that the impact is uh, devastating for many women. And as you said, taking away the right to choose when to have a child uh, is, is a, should be a fundamental human right and should never be the decision of the government. Uh, I think many of us have also uh, noted that if men had babies, this wouldn't be happening. They would have their control over their own bodies. But uh, I wanted to educate our audience and have us think about uh, the impact will have on on some of the lower income families, families that are struggling to make ends meet. What are the consequences for them? Well, um, I'm glad that you asked that question, Renee, because you're exactly right. When people are denied the ability to decide if and when to have children, low-income families suffer the most. No one should be forced to carry a pregnancy to term because of their financial situation. It doesn't even make sense if you think about it. You can't afford to have children. You can't afford to access abortion care. Therefore, you're set up for great parenting. Um, people must find the money to make up for lost wages from the time off of work if they do decide to access abortion care, the cost of child care during recovery, and the estimated you know, $570 out-of-pocket cost for first-term abortion. All of this adds up, including the travel to get to where you need, where to be able to access it. So that's one side of it. That's if families choose to terminate a pregnancy. But the high cost of raising a child are also astronomical. I mean, think about this. It costs about $18,000 to raise a child in America per year today. And I mean, wow. If we're talking about California, we're obviously talking a lot more. Uh, so there's a high cost of raising child and finding child care and wages don't often cover the cost of child care. So a lot of women are forced out of the workplace and families suffer economically and in a lot of other ways. So these are some of the real costs of abortion that people living at or below the poverty line, they just can't afford. Right, right. I, I, I think many of us don't think about those consequences and what those folks are dealing with. I uh, I hear you loud and clear. You know, I, I, 
I want to mention one thing and then I want to tell one story. In, in terms of the $570 cost plus the travel, absolutely right. When we look on the constructive side, many organizations are gaining donations, right? Planned Parenthood has an, uh, had a very big surge and many of the organizations and some of which I'm going to note at the end of the show are now taking that they use to help these women, right, to make sure they have the funds needed for the travel, for the child care, uh, so that they can uh, so that they can access abortion in another state. And I know I've uh, talking with Planned Parent to the expectation that we'll have almost 1.5 million women coming into the state of California for abortions because they are excluded from the 26 states that, as you mentioned. Uh, so we do see there's a you know there's at least a ways that many of us can help. But I think it's also opening up our minds. You know, a friend of mine mentioned that she had had two kids and uh, she and her husband were on uh, uh, in a very difficult spot with their with their jobs. They had just finished their schooling and they were both at entry level jobs and she got pregnant again. And uh, they had a heart wrenching discussion, but she decided that they really would do better just take care of the two children they had. And she had to have an abortion. Unfortunately, uh, you know, she tried first with a, a colleague and a friend. She got a serious infection then she went to a clinic. Uh, and I'm so glad that she was able to do it. You know, talking with her now 20 years later. She feels she made the right decision. She's pleased to see what happened with her two children. She knows it was hard. Uh, but it was her choice. She and her husband had to make that choice. And I think that's what you're talking about here, right? It should be a personal decision between a woman, uh, maybe her partner and her doctor, right? Yeah, I mean, the doctor, yes, but it, it's a decision. I mean, parenting is the most sacred thing and most important thing we do. And what people sometimes don't realize is, A, most people accessing abortion care are already parents. They yes. know what it takes to be a parent, like your friend did. Right. Um but it's also just this um, fundamental, you know, choosing not to parent is also a parenting decision. Yeah. And it's a powerful one because, you know, we, you know, there's a lot of things intertwined with this. But when you are looking at families today, you really want to set every family up for success. That's right. And everybody knows what it takes to make that happen. And determining when and if to have children is core to that decision. And the idea that it is no longer the ability of private citizens to make that decision that impacts their entire life is is a shameful one for America. That's exactly right. There's uh, un, 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 hidden costs and psychological stress and, and uh, demands. I, I know that when I, I was checking out the Golden State Opportunity website, we're going to talk about the organization in the next segment, too, just to. Uh, set the stage for the larger perspective you folks bring in terms of eliminating poverty and addressing poverty. But we'll talk about that in a moment. I saw the national study that was cited uh, that found that a majority of those who sought ab abortions did it because they couldn't afford to support the child. As you just said, uh, many of them are already children. And those that had been denied abortion access were much more likely to earn incomes below the poverty line than those who were able to end their pregnancies. In other words, the trajectory of the woman, it's been documented, right? Sadly, the lack of an abortion will limit the woman's life options. And, and you've expressed how that could be uh, very devastating. And that affects uh, so many women. And unfortunately, we see that in, in, our, in our world today, right? When we see uh, uh, underserved populations. 
Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. It's the Turnaway study. It's one of the longest studies. It was conducted by UCSF, um, and it really sh- shined a light on what it meant for women who are unable to access abortion care when they were seeking it. Um, and the economic outcomes outside of everything else were devastating. So it is, in fact, really devastating what can happen when women are denied an abortion and forced to raise a child they can't afford. And like you said, many women seeking abortions already have a child or children. So they know exactly what having another mouth to feed means for their families. These are kitchen table decision-making policies and activities. Um, And so it is one of those uh, areas where when women are or families aren't able to choose and they are forced into raising a child, not only is that an, an expensive and heart-wrenching decision, but the unplanned pregnancy can result in lower credit scores, increased debt, increased incidence of bankruptcies, and even evictions. I mean, it, it continues a pathway of economic insecurity that we're actually trying to move away from. Um, if you listen to politicians, it's just not in the policies that they're making. You're absolutely right, Amy. There's bigger ramifications. Let's talk more about that. What is the, the you know, the the essence of the situation that we're facing with poverty in the United States and what I call the cycle of poverty. Let's stay tuned for the next section where Amy, who is the president of Golden State Opportunity, will share with us how can we eliminate poverty in the United States? Welcome back to the Renee Frazier Show and Why Women. Today we're talking about how women have been impacted so heavily by some of the changes that we saw in the United States in 2022 and what we can look for in 2023. My guest is Amy Everett, President of Golden State Opportunity. Amy, we talked a lot about the Dobbs decision, what the uh, outlawing of means for women and the serious repercussions it has in their lives. We'll talk more about that later, but I wanted to broaden the discussion now, how we can eliminate or alleviate and reduce poverty in the United States. I know the Golden State Opportunity has been working on this for a long time. Could you start by telling us what Golden State Opportunity is as a nonprofit, the work that you're doing, and then we'll talk about the mission to eliminate poverty. But first, Tell us about Golden State Opportunity. Great. Thank you, Renee. So Golden State Opportunity, we're actually only six years old. Um, We are a nonprofit in California that works to create financial security for low-income workers. And we do that by providing, um, connecting low-income folks with the resources they need to financially thrive. And that includes things like the earned income tax credit, the child tax credit, public benefits like food stamps or um, child care vouchers. It includes uh, financial well-being to understand how to uh, start to build uh, financial security for themselves and their families. And at the same time, while we're looking and building up those programs, which last year connected over 5.5 million households in California with over a billion dollars in California earned income tax credits, and billions more from the federal. Um, at the same time, we're also, we realize that this is a problem that is going on and on and on, and all these programs are amazing, but what would it look like to actually end poverty as we know it in America? So we look at 
what does it take to redefine what it means to be poor in America? And what are the policies and the actions that we need to take to get us there? I like that a lot. Looking at, you know, what are the policies that can change things? Let me reflect for a moment on this notion of uh, what, and we were delighted that we are partners with GSO on the marketing side and that we've been successful to bring people in to take on the earned income tax credit at, at Fraser Communications. I wanted to make a couple of points about financial security uh, for low-income people so they can thrive, the basic mission of GSO. You know, the, the notion of financial security is an interesting one. Uh, if we all reflect on our own personal experiences, many of us grew up in an environment where financial security was implicit but it was something you thought about and you knew about because your family had been given certain benefits. I think in this era, many of us have had to reflect on the fact that financial security is not a given for everyone. As people come into the United States and, and look for opportunities for their families, they are seeking financial security. And sometimes there are, are reasons why it makes it very, very difficult for them to do that. Obviously, they work very hard. They understand that. And I, I will reflect for a moment on the research we did for GSO, where we talked to low-income families, and I was so impressed with the level of devotion they had to their families, to their well-being, to the future, and the hardworking mentality that they had. And the sense of uh, obligation to do the most that they could for their children. We hear this also from the children. And it, is, it, it harkens back, right, to what the United States is all about, giving people opportunity for them to thrive and, as you said, for the next generation to benefit. But unfortunately, there are reasons why, um, uh, you know, financial security is difficult to attain, particularly in today's world. So when you talk about some of the benefits, you mentioned the earned income tax credit. I just want to remind people. This is a box you can check on your on your taxes to get you earned income tax credit, both at the federal level and at the state level. The uh, uh, Cal EITC for me is what Amy is talking about. That comes from uh, Golden State Opportunity messages that for the state of California. But we also have child tax credit. Can you tell us about the child tax credit, what it did in the last period? And then in a moment, we'll talk about bringing it back, which I know is in discussion uh, within Congress. So sorry, child tax credit. Yeah. So, I mean, I think one of the things that, that you point out is it, I want to just, you know, really focus on that. We can and must do better for every family in America. Poverty is not a them problem. It's an us problem. We all have a role to play. We have all had experiences. We all know people. Financial insecurity is, let me remind everyone, only most American families are only $400 away from financial insecurity. That's one medical bill. That's one car that needs repair. So being poor in America looks a lot different today than it might have years ago. But let me address the child tax credit. It was and can continue to be a way to eliminate child poverty for as many as 3.7 million children. And there are two reasons why the credit had such a huge impact. One, we, the United States sent dollars to parents um, at an increased level of $3,000 for children between the ages of 6 and 17. And the payments were monthly. So every month, the caregiver would get $250. And anyone with kids in their lives knows, right? 
the cost of diapers, the cost of childcare, the cost of formula, um, the cost of, of school uniforms or soccer stuff, whatever it is, this money every month made a huge difference in those families. The child tax credit is an investment in our country's children and our country's future. It helps parents who are working but don't make enough so their children can have better lives and better futures. And as you mentioned, it is in Congress and we really just need to pass it again. Totally agree. Now I'll tell you, talking with some of my cynical friends, $300 a month, where does that go? Can you tell me where the money is really spent? Yeah, uh, the number one thing that families bought with a child tax credit was food. They were putting food on their table for wow. their family. Wow. When these monthly payments ended in January of this year, there were 25% more children who had left to eat. I think that's heartbreaking. That is. And that I is. can't believe we live in a country that chose that policy option. Like, to take it away. Yes. To take it away. They had it and then they took it away, which is incredible to me. So when one of the things that I think is really important to understand is that when you give people more cash, like the child tax credit, like the earned income tax credit, they make the right decisions for themselves and their families. It allows people to live with dignity and not in fear of the next unexpected expense. Because remember, we're all, most people are $400 away and that impacts people who don't even expect to. And I will give you an example of that, which is a friend of mine. She's a hairdresser. She was great. She owned her own home. She had a kid. She was making her living. The pandemic happened. She lost her job. She didn't have income. She, her kid broke his arm. And all of a sudden, she had expenses she couldn't cover. She lost her home. She had to move in with friends, which luckily she had that support network. But it happened so fast. And today she's doing much better. But she talks about the whiplash of that decline so fast. And she got the child tax credit. And that made a huge difference for her because she could afford to feed her kid and take care of her family with that. So that is um, one of the, you know, the child tax credit just has so many positive implications. It really does. I, I and I, I love this story. I think there are many people, you know, when we look at the homelessness situation, I unfortunately see this in Los Angeles. Uh, we see so many women and cases, 40 percent women and children, and they can be in their cars, unfortunately, living in shelters or living on the street. Uh, there's been a radical increase, uh, as we know, with the pandemic. Many people lost their jobs. It, it was most most impactful on women. The good news is, based on uh, the statistics, many of those women went back to work, but not always at the same level of pay. Yeah, I mean, the pandemic really laid bare, you know, kind of the two economies that, that, that we're living in. If, if you were white collar and you could work from home, the pandemic didn't have a, a major financial impact on you. If you were an hourly wage worker or a low wage worker, it had an inordinate impact on, on you and people are still recovering. I mean, if you lost your job or weren't able to work or had to find different jobs being an essential worker, putting your life and health on the line to deliver food, um, that you know, people are still recovering from that. Yes, they are. And I, I, I want to put a, a finer point on that. I, I think that, uh, 
as I think about the audience and folks who comment to me about the show, they unfortunately don't always see what we're talking about, the lives and what happened as a result of the pandemic also for that other segment who got to work from home. Uh, they didn't go out to restaurants as much. They didn't travel. So, in fact, there was pent up demand. And we see the spending that was uh, higher on all kinds of goods, including cars, et cetera. Well, that's one segment. That is not the whole picture. As you said, the hourly wage workers, the low wage workers, they, in fact, had to cut back. And they are still dealing with the issues, especially knowing that, uh, you know, we are we're looking at other serious consequences, you know, with the potential in Los Angeles, a surge uh, with COVID and even maybe another masking ordinance coming. But that's as we talk here as we as we enter January. Let's hope that we move through it very quickly. Um, let's go back to the child tax credit that's being uh, uh, considered. Is there anything you can recommend we do, like send a note to our let our uh, House of Representatives? What, what what would you recommend we do to try to support uh, the just you know the reinstatement of the child mm -hmm. tax? Yeah, I, I would. Uh, so you can go to goldenstateopportunity.org. Uh, we have a, a petition that you can sign that will go straight to your uh, members of Congress. Calling them is, is even more powerful. They need to hear from us about how powerful, important the child tax credit is. You know, Gloria Steinem would say that you know your values by looking at your checkbook. And when I look at America's checkbook, I'd like to see us supporting families as much as we support businesses. So I think it is really important for everybody to become their own advocates to say, these are the values that I have as an American, and I want to see the support of the child tax credit and other tax credits for low-income workers who are suffering inordinately. inordinately. Thanks, Amy. This has uh, been a very moving discussion. We're going to pause now for news and traffic. Thank you, Amy Everett. Let's talk some more about what's in the future. And I want to go back to talking about raising your voice with Congress and making that phone call. I did it. It can be scary, but we'll talk about it. Stay tuned. Thanks for joining us again. We're talking about that child tax credit. We just left off about how to go to the goldenstateopportunity.org website where you can get more information about the child tax credit, but also how to sign a petition. Amy, tell us about that in detail so folks know how they can get their voices heard in Washington or at the local level, if that's where you're focused. Absolutely. I mean, the first thing I want to say is it's really important that we all use our voices to talk about and convey to our elected officials what we want from them. Um, I happen to know that when a Dianne Feinstein or an Alex Padilla goes down to the floor of the Senate or Judy Chu goes to the floor of the, of the Congress, they will often talk about how many people have weighed in, how many of their constituents have weighed in. And it is a powerful tool for them uh, to make convincing cases to other people about why it's so important. So that is, you know, it's important for us to all exercise our voice, but I want everybody to know it doesn't go into a black hole. There, I know that Feinstein and Padilla and other members, they literally ask every day, what is the count of for or against on different policy issues? So it's really important. And because it's so important, we're trying to make it as easy as possible 
for your voice to be heard. So if you go to the goldenstateopportunity.org website and you click on take action, all you have to do is fill out a few things and click and it will go straight to your member of Congress and your senator. That's super easy. If you want, when we have actions that are related to LA City Council or other places, you can also just call up the LA City Council and ask to be connected to the office of your member or your representative. And you don't even have to know who that is. They will figure it out and you just leave a message. And it is counted. That's the really critical thing for everybody to know. Your voice will be added to all the other voices on the side of the child tax credit or whatever the issue is. And don't ever forget that the other side of whatever issue it is, whether it's reproductive freedom or poverty policy, there's always somebody on the other side also calling in and trying to be heard. And they, what we want to do is have more people on our side weighing in. Such a good point, Amy. I have made that call. And I know the first time I did it, I was nervous, like I would have to speak to uh, Judy Chu or uh, my other representative at the time, uh, Richard Bloom. And I realized, no, I get to talk to a staff person. I get to explain how I feel. They make a note of it. And it does matter. And then having visited as part of lobbying days uh, on for the Chamber of Commerce, for example, or my women business owners, uh, sitting down with folks, they really do pay attention to how many people are in the room, how many people. And I have seen them talk to their staff people, right? Get me the tally on that, please. So I know what people are thinking. So let's advocate for the those listeners out there. Please pick up the phone, send a text message. Send a, send a petition by going to the goldenstateopportunity.org website, just to say it one more time. Uh, talked a lot about the, uh, about the tax credit, which is great to know, and that's being considered now, so people should monitor that. Uh, as was mentioned to me, we all know people who are receiving and really need that tax credit, so we want to see that happen again. I wanted to talk, though, about the future. Uh, and what GSO sees happening in the future. You've initiated this policy solution, which is a bigger platform. Please tell us about that, Amy. Yeah, so, I mean, I think one of the things that's really important for your listeners to understand is that the poverty that we see today, the homelessness we see on the street today, those are policy options that have been made for the last few decades. And unfortunately, we have been per- choosing policies that perpetuate poverty, not ending it. We know how to end it. We just need to create, we need to get past better policy solutions. So one that we're working on right now, Golden State Opportunity is a nonpartisan nonprofit. And we are working at the federal level right now to introduce a bill. Um, It's called ACE Act. It's the Age Credit Equity Act, but I wanted, uh, before I tell you what it does, let me tell you how it came about. Okay. I've only been working in this anti-poverty space for about three years. Before this, I was in reproductive uh, freedom. And, you know, sometimes when you enter a new area, you oh, your eyes are wide open. And I kept asking, why does the federal earned income tax credit only apply to people who are 25 to 64? And the answer I got was that, well, if you're over 64, you get Social Security. And if you're between 18 and 24, you're in college or you're not working. Now, we all know that's totally not true. It wasn't true in 1975 when Richard Nixon started the Earned Income Tax Credit. And it sure as heck isn't true today. So we talked with some folks about it. And I had a chance to talk with Gene Sperling, 
who uh, is working in the Biden administration. And he was sort of like, that's not really the case, right? I'm like, no, that is the law today. Then I had the opportunity to talk with Paul Ryan's policy people. And they said, that can't possibly be the case. And I said, it is. And so what I saw was an opportunity to work in a bipartisan fashion to create, to improve an already awesome program of the United States of America. So let me say what the EITC is for folks who don't know what it is. It was created because people noticed that when low-income people paid their taxes, they were being taxed into poverty. So that additional tax dollars took so much money out of their um, paycheck that they weren't able to make ends meet. So the earned income tax credit was created, and it's a tax credit that goes back to people um, who don't make enough money um, so that their taxes don't um, put them into poverty. And it has had incredible impact on America. So it's been studied for decades. And the outcomes are this. People who receive the earned income tax credit or something like the child tax credit, they have healthier families, pregnancies are healthier, babies have higher birth rates, kids stay in school longer, they're more successful, and families can save for college or for retirement. It's been amazing. So why wouldn't we expand the federal earned income tax credit to be 18 and over? Because I know that if you have a grandparent who is still working because they have to, why when they turn 65 should they lose out on this credit? That's just not right. And that's what the ACE Act is going to do. Um, and it will impact about 5 million young adults and 2 million seniors across the country. Um, great. Great, Amy. Thank you for explaining that. Because that and that shows me how, as you said, fresh eyes. Look at a mistake that was made. Because so many of these policies have been were instituted under different circumstances, as you just said. So oops, that's wonderful to hear. Over 7 million people are going to benefit as a result of this. What's the progress that you've made so far? What do you think will be happening and when can we celebrate that this goes through? Well, that's a great question. Um, And there's really two routes for us. One is, you know, can we get this put into this end of the year um, tax bill that's being talked about? I hope so, because that would make it that would have an impact on more families next year. Um, And if it doesn't get in there, we're going to be introducing it as a bill in January and we're going to be spending the next year fighting to get it passed. We feel really good about it because we have bipartisan support. We have a coalition um, that includes folks like the AARP and it includes business interests to work together to get this passed. So it's a it's kind of a coalition of the unlikely, if I'm being honest, um, because it's so common sense. Everybody recognizes why it's important to, to have this happen. That's an excellent point, though. I think your your earlier point that we are perpetuating poverty with policy. We don't even realize it. Nobody really wants poverty to exist. But we also worry about taxes, et cetera. And in this situation, you brought both sides together for a common interest. 18 to 23-year-olds and 64 plus or 65 and older can take take advantage of this bad you know policies being changed and they can take advantage of the credit i love that idea i think that's great do you see another policy being addressed in 23 as well so um you know what i hope we're also able to address are things like public benefits um let me give you an example of, of why i say policy perpetuates poverty 
If you are somebody who qualifies for food stamps and housing assistance um, and uh, TANF, which is a work support group, and you get a job, and that's what we want you to have, and you're doing great at your job because you're working really hard, and your boss says, you're doing great, I want to give you a raise. I want to give you more hours. And so you're going to make $10 more a week. That is enough to get to, to kick you out yes. of all of those public benefits that have allowed you to sustain a job. Yes. It's called a benefits cliff. I, I'm very familiar. We have another show on this. So, yes, please go on. The benefits cliff. Absolutely. You fall off of it because you've suddenly hit a higher income level. Please yeah, go ahead. You haven't hit an income level that's going to actually help you make all of your ends meet. Um, so those are some of that is, you know, that isn't a 2023 policy, Renee. That is a long term policy that GSO is building the um, information and the political will now so that when the time is right, we can get that path. It is um, it is one of our bigger pictures. Uh, and I think it's really critical because right now so many people are suffering and we have these these policies that are set up to keep it perpetuating when right. we all want it to end. Right. So it, it kind of doesn't make sense. I, I hear you loud and clear. I think it's getting people to open their minds to the, even the, the knowledge that policy is perpetuating people, people in poverty without without understanding all the details and saying, well, wait a minute, I've got, I don't want that to happen. They align with the outcome and then we, we share with them how it can be changed. I, I think that's great and a, a wonderful part of uh, you know the policy solution agenda. We're going to talk more about reproductive rights in our last segments. Uh, Amy, I wanted to make sure that we talked about why reproductive freedom has such a big impact on someone's economic status, kind of the big picture look. So stay tuned, folks, if you think, well, what difference does it make whether or not a woman has a baby? How does that really affect her economic status? It has a big impact. Stay tuned as we talk about reproductive rights and what it means for economic status for women in our United States and the world. Welcome back to the Renee Frazier Show and Why Women. Today we're talking about the implications behind the changes we've seen in 22 and what it means for us in 23. We talked earlier about the outlawing abortions in, at this point, 26 states. But I think the issue for us to think about here, which is reproductive rights and women. My guest today is Amy Everett, who's the president of Golden State Opportunity. You can find that at goldenstateopportunity.org. Amy, you've been involved in uh, reproductive rights for much of your career. You were VP of NARAL Pro-Choice America. And I, what you've taught me is how women's reproductive rights have a long-term keeping women in a certain position and maybe even limiting their economic viability. Can you explain that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the easy way to explain it, and then I'll go into a little bit more depth, is this. You can't have economic freedom without reproductive freedom, and you can't have reproductive freedom without economic freedom. So when you can control your when and how many children you have, you're going to have better financial and economic outcomes. Um, in 2020, there was a study from the Institute for Women's Policy Research that found that when Roe versus Wade went into effect, 
women experienced higher educational attainment rates, increased entry into the workforce, and had better economic outcomes. We were all successful when we could determine when and how many children to have. It is central to women's economic well-being. And on the flip side of that equation, if you don't have economic freedom, if you don't have financial resources in this country today, you can't actually, it's harder to access abortion care. It is harder to access great programs to support when you have a child. This isn't a country that supports women who have children. Financially, we don't have paid parental leave. We don't have paid child care. Um, right. All of these weigh down on women, pull them out of the job market, or limit the jobs that they can have. So the two go hand in hand. I spent 20 years at NARAP Pro-Choice America. And what I saw there, is, which is what drove me into working into the anti-poverty space, is that women are disproportionately impacted by poverty and by laws that try to dictate our reproductive freedom. And it is time to change to, to link the two of them and change them because they're 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 not separate. Um, it's not a woman's issue about reproductive freedom. It's an economic issue for all of our families. Amy, you're you're so right. And I don't think people fully understand the implications. It certainly came home to me when I read uh, Melinda Gates, who's married to Bill Gates, uh, has been and as, as head of the Foundation Gates Foundation. Her book is called The Moment of Lift. She's a Catholic and, and was visiting in Africa. Bear with me because this is definitely relevant. She had been very interested in eliminating certain diseases and was visiting some of the places where the community, the, the uh, NGOs were operating. She stood in line with women. They got their birth control, talked with them. And she saw that women holding children would talk about how critical it was that they had access to birth control. And in many cases, they were pregnant again, and they had not been given birth control or the pills had been late, the medicine had not occurred. And in one particularly touching moment, one of the women tried to give her children to Melinda. And she said, I can't care for them. I have this new baby coming. Will you take my children? And Melinda Gates talks about that as a changing moment in her life where she realized reproductive freedom was critical for these women to be to be able to thrive with their families, to be able to take care of the children that they had. And she could see that, in fact, without reproductive rights, they were keeping women in their place. And I think that's at the heart of what you're talking about, Amy, as well. It's a, it's a way in which we we uh, we disempower women, unfortunately, because it limits their options. But I'll let you react. That. I know that the international perspective uh, seems out of the blue, but it, this seems to be a, tr a truth through around the world that reproductive rights need to be in need to be in, in the control of the women themselves, because otherwise it has limiting factors. You're exactly right, Renee. And, and you know, there's a reason that the United Nations has made access to abortion and reproductive care a human right because of the incredible uh, economic oppression, physical oppression, that not being able to control your reproductive rights has. So it is, um, it is really critical uh, that, you know, when I think about America and then I look at Mexico and I look at Ireland and I look at these other countries that are heavily Catholic and have been opposed to abortion for decades, opening up 
and recognizing the importance of reproductive freedom while the United States of America, the land of the free, goes in the opposite direction. There's something fundamentally at play here. And to the point that I think you were making, I'll, I'll just call it out, is it's not just about women's reproductive freedom. It's about controlling women. Exactly. Uh, if you can't, you know, every every autocrat runs on first sidelining women with pregnancies they can't sustain because that's how they stay in control. And right. women are front line on these things. Um, so I don't want to get totally out there. But when you are trying to stop people from making reproductive health decisions that are best for them and their families, what you're really doing is you are trying to control their lives. And just make no mistake about that. What gives me a lot of hope is the fact that a lot of the voters in America, voters we didn't expect, Kansas, Michigan, uh, Kentucky, they understand Americans know what's at stake and they are saying no to the small minority that now happens to control our, our government or Supreme Court, and they're ready to make a difference. And I think that that is gonna have amazing repercussions for us long-term where we can put this issue behind us once and for all. Thank you for that call to hope. I think you're absolutely right, Abby. There are good signs, as you said, with the states acting, and we will see change happening in 2023. I wanna make sure know that they can go to goldenstateopportunity.org, sign up for the newsletter, can also make a donation, and you can follow the policy solution, both the Credit Equity Act that we just talked about, uh, which is being considered, and uh, the coalition, both uh, also, it's a nonpartisan effort you can join, and of course, the uh, credit, the uh, child tax credit uh, uh, bill that's being considered in Congress now. And I hope many of you re have realized how making your voice heard is so important. Uh, take the time to make the call, take the time to sign a petition and, and follow these issues. And as we all know, this show is about why women, uh, I really do believe what Amy has said that we are controlling women. And I'll just say the other underlying uh, truth about this if women have children, that's their focus, right? And when women have families, that will always be their, uh, you know, their primary role and goal in life. But they need to choose when to do that and be able to do it in a way that is fulfilling with the uh, economic capacity to help those children thrive. So we do have to see these reproductive rights as belonging to the women and giving them their freedom to choose. Well, thank you, Amy Everett. You've been wonderful. Amy, would you like to make a final comment to our audience? Um, I just want to thank you, Renee, for having me on. I want to encourage people to go to goldenstateopportunity.org. There's a lot of misinformation out there about what poverty is and who's poor and why, and we debunk a lot of those myths. So I suggest you go to our website, learn more, and get involved because we are we are on our way to changing the policymaking in our country so that we can actually put an end to it. So thank you, Renee, for this opportunity to talk about two of my favorite topics. We really appreciate your being on the show. 